Romans, part 32. We're going to probably finish up chapter 11. We should finish chapter 11 today and then start chapter 12, a, a complete different section. Um, so to recap where we are up to, right, 9, 10, 11, Paul is basically answering the question of, of 1 through 8, chapters 1 through 8, He's promising you that God has given you so many mercies, so many blessings, so many things, justification, sanctification, glorification, and that you should trust him, have confidence in him, that nothing can separate you from the love of God, right? He's done all these things and nothing's going to separate you from the love of God. And he takes this little detour to answer the question that someone might ask, well, didn't God give blessings and promises and covenants to Israel? And look at them now, right? This would be 2,000 years ago. They've rejected God, their Messiah. So what about Israel? Can we trust in God's mercies and blessings and gifts to us when we can see Israel? And so 9, 10, and 11 are Paul answering that question, what about Israel? And we're coming to the end of that section. Um, and so we're at chapter 11, uh, verse 25, and he gives many, many things, many evidences that God has not forgotten Israel, primarily that it was all part of his plan, right? It was all part of his plan. He wasn't surprised by their rejection. He wasn't surprised that um, the Messiah would be killed. It was prophesied that he would be killed. In fact, if the Messiah wasn't killed, then he's not the Messiah, basically. If Christ was not killed, murdered on the cross, he was not the Messiah because the Old Testament scripture said that he would be cut off, right? And so he go, Paul is going into some false teachings, the purpose of Israel stumbling. Can anybody answer what was one of the reasons why Israel stumbled or why Israel rejected their Messiah? Does anybody have so far? They to the law. They wanted. To, they were primed. They were primed to reject the Messiah because the Messiah was based on salvation. Righteousness was based upon faith in the Messiah, whereas their teaching was you get righteousness by obeying the law, right? The Mosaic law. Um, another reason why Israel stumbled. Anybody know? So that was a purpose. The purpose of them. I will send. Right. He says, I will send to you in Zion a stumbling block, a rock of offense. Right. So purposely, God sent Christ, knowing that they would be a stump, that He would be a stumbling block to the nation of Israel, so that the Gentiles would come in. And what are the what is one of the purposes of the Gentiles being saved? What is one of their purposes in relation to provoke the Jews to jealousy? Right. So we see this cycle: how God has caused the nation of Israel to reject the Messiah, so that Gentiles could come in. Gentiles by coming in provoked the Jews to jealousy so that they would go to the Messiah, right? We see that, that kind of cycle there. And so then Paul, so he's basically telling us the Gentiles, you know, don't become proud. Remember how you got here, right? You are a wild olive branch grafted into the natural tree. The natural tree, the root and the, the um, trunk are are uh, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the blessings that God has chosen to, to give to the world, right? The Abrahamic covenant is land, seed, worldwide blessing. So Paul gives an illustration of this olive tree and the, the tree itself, the root and its branches are, are the root and its trunk are the, the 
place of spiritual blessing, the Abrahamic covenant that God has chosen to work through the world. And some of those branches were broken off, which is Israel, the nation, were broken off so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. So that's one, one thing. But Paul then goes into there is a mystery, right? And the mystery is that the Gentiles would become fellow heirs, right? And the mystery is that there's a partial temporary hardening of the Jews so that they could come in until when? Does anybody remember when that will end, that partial temporary hardening? To the fullness of the Gentiles, right? The fullness, that word in Greek, just means a set time or a set number. So there is a set number of Gentiles who will come in. Once that set number is met, the rapture occurs. We don't know what that set number is. We don't know when the rapture will occur, but we know that it will occur, and it seems like it would be very soon, right? Based upon prophecy and current events and things like that, but we, we don't know. But we are always looking forward to it, waiting for it, and we would say, Maranatha, come quickly, right? Come. Um, okay, so that puts us at 25, chapter 11, verse 25. Like he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. And 26, he tells us what the mystery is. 25b tells us what the mystery is. It's a partial, partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, like we said, one of the main purposes of the church age is to call out from among the Gentiles a people for God's nature. Like we talked about how the Old Testament talked about there would be a people that were without a nation, right? They were a people that would came from all over without a nation. They would provoke the nation of Israel to come to their Messiah. And that calling out will come complete the total of Gentiles. until it will, it will be complete until the total of Gentiles is complete or is reached. And like we said, that's when the church will be removed and it will go back to God dealing with Israel as a nation again, rather than just Jewish individuals. Okay, so read verse 26a, if you would. And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. Okay, so all Israel shall be saved, and we talked last week about how all Israel is, not re is referring to all the Jews at that time. So after the church has been removed in the rapture, God goes back to dealing with Israel, and we know that in the Great Tribulation, there are many, many, many Jews who are killed that are not saved. That remnant who is left, all Israel shall be saved. When we talked about how God has always worked in Israel through a remnant, right? It's always been a small remnant. And Paul gives an illustration of Elijah, right? And how he thought he was the only one. He says, no, there's 7,000 others. But in a nation of something like a million or two million people, 7,000 is not a lot. And today, a remnant of Jews is probably a very small number of Messianic Jewish believers, right? Okay, so to prove that all Israel will be saved at that time, he quotes two passages from the Old Testament, and that's 26b and 27. So if you'd read 26b and 27. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. 
And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When I take away their sins. So these are two Old Testament passages. It's from Isaiah 59, 20, and 21 is the first one. And I'll read that. It says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So the Redeemer who will come from or come to Zion is the Messiah. At that second coming of Christ, he comes literally onto the uh, to Jerusalem and, and physically presents himself again to the world as a conquering king. The other passage that Paul is quoting is Isaiah 27, 9. Um, and it says, Therefore, by this, this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No ashram or incense altars will remain standing. So, Paul is proving that God is not finished with Israel by showing that God will take away the sins of the people of Israel again, right? Um, it's through another covenant that he made. Does anybody know the, another covenant that God made with the nation of Israel besides the Abrahamic covenant? It's in Jeremiah. The new covenant, right? The new covenant. So both of, the, both of these Isaiah passages talk about a national regeneration of Israel at the time of the second coming. That's when the new covenant comes in. And I don't want you to be mistaken. Many, many uh, evangelicals teach that the church receives the new covenant. But all of the covenants, if you just look at them, read them for what they say, they all say to the house of Israel. Right? They all say to Israel. Um, and so the new covenant is this this. Will take the new covenant will take place at this time when a redeemer comes to Zion, when the people those in Jacob Jacob is another term for Israel, right? Another name for Israel. Uh, he says, "My spirit that is upon you, my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, from this time forth and forevermore." So Paul is saying, when this happens, Israel will be restored forever. Right? So right now, there's, the mystery is there's a partial hardening of national Israel for the purpose of bringing in the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. When they come in, they are removed, and then God goes back to dealing with Israel as a nation, and there'll be a time when Christ comes, and he establishes that new covenant, that new contract that he makes with Israel from this time forth and forevermore. Yeah? We're getting that? Okay. <laughs> All right, let's look at uh, verse 28. Someone read verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Keep going. No, that's good. So who's the they in that? As regards the gospel, they, who's the they? Israel. Israel, right? And then who's the your? Gentiles. The Gentiles, right? So the hardening of Israel in spite of the covenant promises is God's way of bringing Gentiles to himself, right? Right now they are enemies because they are 
partially hardened, right? They're enemies of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of their Messiah coming to this earth, dying, bearing, resurrecting, right? But they're hardened to that idea. So they're enemies to the sake of the gospel of, of, world, of worldwide salvation. We talked about how they, the Jews failed to, or they were ignorant in their charge. That was their charge, was to bring the good news to the world. They would be the kingdom of priests to the world. They didn't do that. And so God's using the Gentiles now, and that's what's provoking them to jealousies because, because they should have been doing it, and they didn't, right? So as far as the gospel is concerned, Jewish people are enemies for Gentiles' sake, but as far as what is concerned, they're beloved. Election, election right? For, but as regards to election, so election is God's divine appointment, God's divine choices, God's divine sovereignty, taking place. So even though they are enemies for the gospel's sake temporarily, they are elected, right? And they are beloved for the sake of who? Their forefather. Their forefather. Why, why would that be? Why, why for the sake of their forefathers? The promises that God gave the forefathers, God is faithful, God will do it, regardless of the, gen the generations that follow. Right, so it's a God. It's always about God's faithfulness. It's always about His promises being kept. It's not about whether Israel, you know, responds good or does nice things or does good things. God's faithfulness keeps them beloved because of the promises He made Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. Just knowing that, you would know that God will not forsake Israel, right? And that was a question that Paul asked. Did God reject Israel? And his response of all his own questions are, by no, by no means, no way, Jose, not at all. No, don't even think about it, right? So by knowing God's faithfulness and God's, God, like I said, God has reduced himself in a sense of constricting his behavior to a, con uh, a contract, right? A covenant. When he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, he does these things. So he makes sure that everything that he does sticks into the confines of the covenant. That's an amazing, amazing understanding about God is that he has all, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's everywhere, he's done everything, and yet he constrains himself to behave in the future for that covenant. That's an amazing thing. Okay, so again, eventually God will bring the whole nation of Israel to himself because of the contract he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham has never realized the fulfillment of the promises given to him. That's one evidence of resurrection, is that God told Abraham, you will receive these things. Well, Abraham has been dead, and yet he will resurrect to to realize those things, right? Realize the fulfillment of the covenant. So he's looking forward to that. Okay, then verse 29 explains why God will fulfill the covenants. And I kind of talked about it already, so read verse 29. But gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable, right? The nature of God's promises is unconditional. It's unchanging, right? Therefore, God... I hate to say must, because who can you say to God must, but he himself will do those things, right? Because he is immutable, he's unchanging, and when he says this, he will do those things, right? It's irrevocable. So calling refers to 
Israel's national election, right? He called, he elected them, right? And that's their calling. He chose them to be his people. And then the gifts are the promises that he gave them as a result of the calling, or as a result of the election, right? Both of those things are irrevocable. Nothing can get in the way of that, right? Just like Paul says, nothing can separate you from the love of God, no height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor angels, nor anything. Nothing can get in the way of God's calling and God gift and God's gifts to the promises of Israel. Yeah? Okay, so any any comments or questions or thoughts so it's far? Comforting to us. It is. Right, so that question is being answered, right, without a doubt, that you can believe in the mercies and the promises of God. Look at Israel, right? It's an example, right? So he's going, Paul 9, 10, 11 is going to wrap up this section of the status of Israel, this little tangent in verses 30 through 32. Um, so he points out that un, there's, there's a fascinating verse in here that I, that's going to be interesting. Um, he points out that unbelief has given God the opportunity to do to show mercy. Unbelief by Israel, unbelief by the Gentiles, is an opportunity for God to show forth His mercy. Right? It's God's kindness that leads us to mercy. Right? God's 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 loving kindness leads us to Him. So it's not on the deserving, but on the undeserving. Right? Both Jews were undeserving, Gentile, we're undeserving. You look at yourself clearly, you're undeserving. I'm undeserving, right? So read verse 30 if you were, if you would. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Okay, so again, the Gentiles were once disobedient, but now we have received mercy, right? 31, if you'd read it for 31 also. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. All right, so the Gentiles were once in disobedience and received mercy. Now Israel is in disobedience and they too will receive mercy. Are we following that? And then look at verse 32, and this is the verse I was talking about. Go ahead, read verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Right. God has consigned all to disobedience. All. That's all. Right. That's all Jews. That's all Gentiles. That's your children. That's your parents. That's your friends. That's your co-workers. God has consigned all to disobedience. Why? So that he can have mercy on all. For God so loved the world that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Right. The world is in disobedience to him. The world, there's none that choose him. No, not one. There's no righteous one. But he says God has given them over, right? Consigned them to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. So that's the same point that he's saying about Israel. Israel has not been lost or rejected. They're in disobedience so I can show forth my mercy again to them. And the Gentiles too. You were disobedient and I have extended mercy to you. So... The word all is without distinction, meaning Jew, Gentile, male, female, but not without exception, right? Meaning, who receives the mercy of God? Do all receive the mercy of God? Only those who what? Call? 
follow, have faith, right? Only those who follow God's provision, which is faith in his son, Jesus Christ, receive mercy. So the all is that it can go to all, right? But So it's all without distinction, anybody, but it's not without exception. The exception is only to those who receive, by faith, God's provision. Yeah? All who have faith in Christ can obtain mercy, meaning both Jews and Gentiles, but if anybody is saved, it's only by God's mercy, right? You, can, you cannot be saved in any other way other than God's mercy. God's mercy is, is manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All you must do is believe that that's the provision that it is. That's it, right? It's, it's salvation by grace, God's mercy. Mercy meaning not giving what you deserve. Grace give, meaning giving what you do deserve. Uh, I'm sorry. Grace is not, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, right? And so the gift is, is the gift of God is grace, and you receive it by mercy instead of getting what you do deserve. Okay, so good. That, that kind of wraps up Paul's whole scenario of Israel. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy in all. So just like you were disobedient, you receive mercy. The Israelites who reject God are disobedient, and they will receive mercy. So then Paul then goes into a doxology, right? And this doxology is, is a fantastic doxology, right? Because he's going to reflect on God's plan and program of Israel, the church, the Gentiles, salvation for all of us through faith in Christ, He's praising the wisdom of God, right, and the riches of God. Because now, now that we've studied chapters 9 and 11, really 1 through 11, um, if we fully understand God's dealings with the Jewish people, right, and if we clearly understand God's plan and program for Israel, we will understand and appreciate it from his point of view. When we understand it from his point of view, we will say... Verse 33a. So someone read verse 33a. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And the, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So we learn how the depth and the riches, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God has been, is being manifested because God hardened the Jews so Gentiles could be saved. Gentiles are provoking the Jews so Jews could be saved, right? That's, the, that's what Paul is saying. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, would we have done that? No, we wouldn't have thought about that or even could we even bring that to pass. Read verse 33b. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. Unfathomable, right? So we often ask, well, why did God do it this way? Or why does God do it that way? Or why this, right? How unsearchable are his judgments? How in, inscrutable his ways, right? They are from his wisdom, right? His wisdom is way beyond our ability, our understanding, our human understanding, right? In fact, Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Right? The world, con I've had conversations with people that said, Well, that's a silly God. I would have never done it that way. Right? Things, things to that nature. And you're like, and I've said it before, well, if you don't like it, get your own universe. You know, figure it out. <laughs> you know, but that's what it is. So our thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Right? He gives more of God's wisdom. Verse 34, please. Right, so 
Can anyone teach God anything more? No. Can anyone be a counselor, right, to him and give him therapy or give him some kind of, you know, insight, right? Who can we try, don't we? Well, we yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, we know how to deal with ourselves, we think, right? Right. That's right. Okay, so that's his wisdom. 35 is his riches. Somebody read 35. Right, can you give, can, can, what's his, you know, uh, Elon Musk or, or uh, Zuckerberg, these guys give him riches that he has any debt to them, right? Can, can anybody give anything to God that he doesn't already have to, he already owns and have to pay it back, right? God is absolutely free. He is a debtor to no one, right? Um, and why, why is he a debtor to no one and absolutely free? Re read verse 36. Amen, right? We say amen. So for from him and through him and to him are all things. And one day, Elon Musk and Bill Gates and those guys will re recognize that it, all the things that they own or have or whatever they think they have all came from him, right? Okay, so what a fantastic doxology, right? And that'd be enough if we just stopped right there. <laughs> enough. Everything is there, right? Good. Are we any thoughts, comments, questions again so far? Going well, back to that disobedience thing, there's too many Christians that think, you know, well, Israel doesn't really believe in the Messiah, and they rejected him, and God's done with them, and you know they should be accursed, and the Israel today isn't really the biblical Israel. All these terrible things, and it's so against God's heart that you can see here that that He allowed that hardness to happen. For our benefit, and then for us to turn around and say, "Well, I'll take the mercy, but you got to like pound them," you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just like it's so wrong. Yeah, it is. Well, with that, with the same train of thinking that you're here, by them saying God's done with Israel, you should have doubt that God could be done with you, right? In the same vein, that if they're saying that, you know. They rejected their Messiah. Their then they are. They rejected their Messiah. They're secular human. They're in a state of disobedience. They have a partial hardening. They've availed over. They are not like uh, you know a bastion of hope for us to emulate. Right? We're not to emulate the nation of Israel's leadership at all. But that's get, that proves exactly God Paul's point about God in their disobedience as an opportunity for God to show mercy, right? It's all doxological, meaning it's all for the praise of God. Everything is for the praise of God. Your life is for the praise of God. Everything is a doxological purpose. Christ dying on the cross, being resurrected, is all for the glory of God. Not for your personal salvation, which is a byproduct, but it's all for the glory of God. Everything, all things, right? What does it say? Um, for from him and through him and to him are all things. All things, right? That's the death. That's the resurrection of Christ. It's all his because it's all doxological, right? And the reason why God is jealous is because he is in all. He is all things. He's jealous of that, that worship because he's the only thing worthy of that worship, right? The only thing worthy because he's the only one who causes disobedience so he can show mercy, right? He's the only one who causes uh, election, the only one who causes the calling, right? He's the one who does those things. Therefore, he is worthy of those things from our perspective, right? 
So like you were saying, Patty, if, if they take that, if, if Christians take that perspective, they ought to go to the logical conclusion and say, well, that means my salvation really isn't that sure. Well, that's what they do. Yeah. They say you can lose your salvation, yeah. and they go to that whole, you know, yeah. logical debate. Right. So you never really have that fullness, yeah. assurance of salvation. I fear all the time I have to do this, or, I, you know, if I don't stay prayed up and I die tonight, I would go to hell. You yeah. know, it's like... What a terrible way to live and think of God. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm glad they take it to that logical conclusion. Some do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, most people don't even think about it, but it's, it's what you, you, they need to do that, right? And, and then read 9, 10, 11, you're like, oh, this is great. <laughs> Why am I following that stupid idea? So, Okay, good? Okay, so now I'll just give you a summary so far, because it preps us for 12 through 16. So, like we've been saying, Paul answered the question, right? Paul answered the question, God will keep his promises to Israel, right? Therefore, he will also keep his promises to the church, to you, right? The church has every reason to be thankful, right? And rejoice because we learned nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. That should give you goosebumps, right? Or that should give you like joy and peace and all the things is that nothing can separate you from the love of God. It is all in his plan. Even your disobedience is an opportunity for him to show mercy, right? Okay, that's 9 to 11. The, the question has been answered. God is not finished. They will come back in. Okay, so so far Romans, right? So we looked at the introduction. That was chapter 1, 1 through 17. He, he is expressing God's form or God's righteousness, right? He was making sure the Roman church, the people in Rome, knew what God's righteousness was. Um, they weren't, remember, they were not um, founded by an apostle. They were not founded by, um, you know, someone that walked with Christ. So Paul is giving them a letter to ensure they have sound doctrine, sound theology. And he wants to impart to them some spiritual wisdom, right? So he's, make, he's just uh, contrasting what Judaism taught or what even Gentiles thought about righteousness before God. So the first three chapters, he's basically saying all humanity, right? Pagan Gentiles, culture Gentiles, and the Jews all fall short of the glory of God, all fall short of the righteousness, the righteous standards of God. All have sinned and fall short of the righteousness of God, right? That's the first three chapters. There's no one without excuse, no matter if you're, like I said, a barbarian or you're cultured or you're a Jew that has the law, you all fall short, right? That's chapters one through three. And then he describes God's righteousness solves that problem. We're all dead to sin, right? No one chooses God, but God in his love and in his mercy solves the problem. And he solves it by one way, one truth, one life, the person of Jesus Christ, right? So he, God solves this problem of man cannot get righteousness by any means, by any standard they make up, only by God's provision, and his provision is Jesus Christ the Messiah, right? So that salvation has three tenses, right? A past, a present, and a future. Uh, the moment you have your faith, you put your faith in the provision that God gave, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ, you're justified, right? You're not, you're, and that justification declares you righteous. It's not that you become perfect and righteous in your behavior, 
but God looks upon you as he looked upon Christ as righteous. And now the process, the present tense of salvation is sanctification. Now that process begins, right? And we learned how we can hold ourselves back from sanctification, but God is always working in it. And that's actually what 12 through 16 is going to be, is that now you understand the theology. Now let's go into the practical application of that right understanding, okay? Um, so again, sanctification, who does the sanctification in you? The Holy, Spirit. the Holy Spirit, right? And his purpose is to do what? What is sanctification's purpose? Conform you to more and more to the image of his son, right? Image of Christ, right? So that you would act like Christ and think like Christ, right? On a moment by moment, day by day basis. The future aspect of, of salvation is glorification, right? Glorification is guaranteed because we've been justified and we are being sanctified. And we talked about even the fact of knowing that you have this inner turmoil in your brain, right? You, you do the things you don't want to do. You don't do the things you want to do, right? That inner turmoil. That inner turmoil, does anybody remember what is that? What is that proof of? Otherwise, you wouldn't care. Otherwise, you wouldn't care, right? So it's, it's an interesting way to change your mind and say trials, tribulations, struggles in my brain about why I do the things I don't want to do, why I don't do the things I want to do, is proof the Holy Spirit is in you. The proof of the Holy Spirit in you is proof that you will be glorified, right? Oh, the depth and riches of God, right? It's like these, wor these things that he works in you, right? So that proof, that turmoil, that struggle within you is evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your heart, working in your mind to conform you to the image of Christ. And that one day you will be glorified. That's, that's assurance that you will be glorified, right? Because remember, we, we were co-crucified with Christ, co-buried with Christ, co-resurrected with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? Okay, so at the end of chapter 8, Paul points out that um, in light of all that God has done for believers, like we said, there's nothing. He's justified you. He's sanctifying you. He will glorify you. Nothing will separate that from you. It's God's love that prevents anything from taking that from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Justification, sanctification, and glorification is because God loves you. And he chose you. Right? He elected you. He's only calling those whom he chose. Right? And we, we had a brief discussion about that's a hard thing for us to grapple because we have friends or children or parents or co-workers or whatever who are not following God, right? are not there. And what do we do about that? Right? And that's a tough thing to understand, God's election. But nonetheless, all the depths and of his wisdom that his ways are not our ways, is all we can really say about that, right? Okay, so like we said, after teaching correct doctrine, he doesn't go into correct uh, orthopraxy or, or correct conduct. He goes instead, talks about Israel, right? So that was that little, that little tangent that he went into, was, was uh, Israel. Um, so we already talked about that. So Romans 9 through 11 is pivotal for us to go 4 to 12 through 16 because it's 
God's righteousness in dealing with Israel. Now that we are confident, and now that we know that God has not forgotten Israel, God promised Israel all these things, God promised all, us all these things, and we know that God is going to fulfill those things to Israel, we can have trust in God's faithfulness that He will fulfill all the things He promised us in 1 through 8. Yeah? Um, okay. So we can skip all that because we already talked about all that. So God's program for Israel has not failed. It's continuing according to his divine plan. Israel too will someday experience the fullness of God's grace in a national sense. Now that he's established that, now that we know that to be true, he's now going to, Paul is now going to move on to applying correct doctrine, right? Uh, so orthodoxy is correct doctrine, orthopraxy is the practice of that doctrine, correct conduct. Yeah? Okay, are we good on time? Oh, we're pretty good. We might be able to get through one verse. All right, so now, seven, application. God's righteousness at work. So this is going to cover Romans 12.1 to 15.13. So, like we said, after he gave correct doctrine of God's righteousness, he's now going to teach us how to put that understanding into practice of our everyday lives. Um, so he's going to kind of touch on multiple different aspects, multiple different things, and how that carries out, how that plays out in the life of a believer. So, A, application to our conduct. This is going to cover 1 through 21. That righteousness in you, right, will lead you to a certain conduct. And the foundation of that conduct is in verses 1 and 2, 12, 1 and 2. It's actually described as humility, right, and love. We're going to see that our response should be one of humility and love. So then, so we're at 7A1. The foundation of our conduct is present yourself or dedicate yourself. Um, this is the foundation of how we conduct ourselves now. In light of all the things we have, we conduct ourselves in, in a righteous manner. And the, the thing that we must do is present yourself. Present yourselves to God. There's a, so Paul is directly appealing to you to present or dedicate yourself to God. So read verse 1, if you would. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, that's exactly right. So that is a, a, a fantastic verse. We need to pay attention to the therefore, right? The key word of the sentence is therefore. Whenever we see a therefore, what do we do? Therefore. <laughs> What's the therefore? <laughs> right? What's the therefore, therefore? Right? So that's exactly that. The, uh, he's drawing a specific conclusion from what he had been saying before. Right? All these things I've given you, therefore this. Yeah? Um, so it's a based upon 1 through 11, the chapter based upon of the nature of salvation. He's in, strongly encouraging us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. 
We are to do this in response, right? This is a response. Because of the mercies that I've been giving you, the doctrine that I've been telling you that God will do everything for you, and God is faithful to fulfill it all, because of the mercies that we are now enjoying, you ought to present your body a living as a living sacrifice, right? That's a reasonable service. Does anybody have that verse or that version that says a reasonable um, response or something like that? King James, which is your reasonable service. Which is your reasonable service. That, I think that's a, a, a great thing to say. Some, some say spiritual worship, but a reasonable service is, is of the mind, right? You say, in light of all these mercies and all these things, I think upon these things and I go, wow, I've been given so many things. My, what do I do? My reasonable response is to present myself to him, right? Here, here, have it all. I die to myself. I crucify myself. I don't want nothing to do with this. Take it all and sanctify me. Let me be conformed to the image of your son, right? So since you are redeemed, God has done all those things. Dedicate or present yourself as a living sacrifice. Okay, so redemption, the fundamental meaning of redemption is to be purchased from slavery, right? You're purchased out of something. You are in debt. Redemption is purchasing you out of that debt. Excuse me. When you accept Christ as the Messiah, you are redeemed by his blood. The blood paid the penalty. The blood paid it. So you're no longer owed to that slavery, right? You've been purchased from the slave market. We talked all about that. You've been set free. The only person who puts you back into the cage is yourself, right? Um, again, it doesn't mean that you... It doesn't mean, however, that you are automatically a slave to Christ. You don't go from being a slave to sin to a slave to Christ until you present your body and say, I will be a slave to you or I will be a bond slave to you, right? Um, in Romans chapter 1, 1, when, he when Paul introduces himself, he says, I am Paul, a bond servant of Christ, right? He's a bond servant. Does anybody remember what a bond servant is? A bond slave, bond servant? I think it's the same as the slave, except that you do it yourself. No one's forcing you. That's right. You choose, right? So that's a concept from the law of Moses. <coughs> Excuse me. If... If a Jew owed somebody and he couldn't pay them back for whatever it is, he would go and be un a slave to that master to pay back whatever debt he owed for six years. After the seventh year, they'd have a year of jubilee, right? And he'd be set free. Well, if that same Jew didn't want to leave because he liked it or he wanted to stay there or he was doing fine, he would stay there and they would put a big thing through his ear, right? And they'd hammer it against the post as a symbol as a symbol of being a bond slave. So he acted in the same way as, as being a slave before, but now he's choosing to voluntarily be there because his life was better. I, I mean, there's multiple reasons, but that's what, the, that's what the understanding of a bond slave is. Paul is saying, I received the mercies of God and I choose to stay within that debt per se to Christ. I'm completely in debt to him because he's done all these things to him. So I choose to put myself in slavery, I mean, we have such a different word about meaning of slavery to this day than what that's really saying or what that's meaning. But Paul is saying, I was a bond, I am a bond servant. I choose to be under Christ's rule and under Christ's uh, um, authority in my life, right? So he made the choice to become the Lord's slave. He did this out of his own free will. Um, 
So now Paul is saying, I've done that. I'm urging you to do that. And the way you do that is to present or dedicate yourself a living and holy sacrifice to God, right? Because you've been freed from the bondage of sin, you were a slave to sin, you were free now. Now you're a slave in a sense of his authority and his dominion over you for the purpose of sanctification. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. This is a commitment that only believers can make, right? A non-believer can't make that, but only a believer can make that commitment. So the foundation or the reason of you presenting or dedicating yourself is because of the mercies of God, right? The, remember we were just reading, God has consigned all to disobedience so that he can show mercy to all. You've been shown mercy to all, so now your reasonable service or your worship is to go give back everything you have to him, right? That's the reasonable thing. <clears throat> so our, our mercies also include our union with Christ, right? And all the things, so we had, we had justification, sanctification, glorification, or the mercies God has given us. We also have union with Christ with the Holy Spirit indwelling us changing us moment by moment, giving us authority, giving us power to overcome our old selves. We are co-crucified, co-buried, co-resurrected with Christ. We are now in a new position. Remember, we were in a position under the wrath of God, and now we're under a new position of being in Christ, right? We are in Christ. That position is what is a mercy that God has given us, right? So by being in that position, we have spiritual power and authority over ourselves. Um, even in even the Jews, in, in Romans 7, Paul says that even the Jews are, are no longer under the Mosaic Law, but under grace. Um, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers, we helping us in our weaknesses, right? Therefore, nothing can separate us from the love of God. All those are mercies of God that he's given to us. So that's our reason why we'd present or dedicate ourselves to him, because of the mercies of God. Um, so and, and we can have full confidence that those mercies will be sustained and they will not be go away because of what he taught in 9, 10, 11 about Israel, right? So we have all confidence to trust in God's faithfulness and loyalty to the mercies to us, yeah? Um, so that, that phrase, right, the mercies of God, really summarizes all of Paul's theology so far that God has done on behalf of all believers is his mercies, his mercies, not giving you what you deserve, right? And then giving his son, giving you what you don't deserve, right? It's grace. So because of God's mercies, we are to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. It's a deliberate, voluntary choice that you make, right? It's not having to do with salvation. You've been saved. Nothing changes that. Your faith in the person and work of Christ justifies you. But presenting your body is a voluntary, reasonable service that you would do to give your life to him, right? To present your body as a living sacrifice. Remember that in Romans 6.13, Paul, Paul um, discusses the body as an instrument. It could be an instrument of righteousness or an instrument of unrighteousness, right? I'll read it in verse 13 of chapter 6, Romans 6. It says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Oh, shoot. That went by quick. Okay, we better end right there.
6.13. Let me just end with quickly, and then we'll go over this next week. But this offering of our body is vastly different than the offerings that they would make in the Mosaic Law, right? Um, remember, the sacrificial animals were to be killed before they were presented to God, right? But what is Paul saying? Present yourself as a living sacrifice, right? So it's a vastly different understanding of just being a goat or something to be led to the slaughter. You're presenting your body as a living sacrifice, ongoing and regular. We'll touch on that next week, but just know that it's not the same the same. So, okay? Let me pray. Father God, we bow our hearts to you, Lord, because of your mercies. The, the, the depth of your wisdom and the depth of your riches is ununderstanding to us yet we can receive and understand parts of it. We're so very grateful for all the mercies, Lord. We ask, we are urged, and we pray, Lord, that you would motivate us to present our bodies in a living, holy sacrifice to you because it's just a simple, reasonable response to what you, all the great things you have done to us, Lord. Lord, help us to live the crucified life. Help us to understand that we are no longer slaves to sin, but that we choose to be a bond slave to your son for the purpose of being conformed to your son, that we would change our thinking, we would change our understanding of this world, and that we would draw to you, Lord, draw us to you, Lord. We believe, help us in our unbelief, and help us to just let, let it go, and let our old selves go, our old nature go, and just fall into you and receive the, the fullness of life, the peace that surpasses understanding, uh, and the river of life in our hearts, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.